everyone, and welcome back to the Madness and Grace podcast. I am here with Matt. Matt, how are you doing today? I'm good today. How are you, Emily? Good. I'm really excited about recording today's episode because we have some questions that we got in from listeners, and I'm just excited to be their voice and be able to answer those questions for them. Yeah, me too. I, I'm, I'm excited about these episodes where we answer questions because honestly, that's when I learn the most when people ask questions, and I think it's when we can give the most practical advice and help to people out there that are struggling with mental health issues. Yeah, we have a good variety of questions, some personal, some just general, kind of in the mental health sphere. So if you're ready, we can get started. Yeah, let's jump in. Cool. So question number one says, I am a licensed mental health counselor and feel a strong calling to educate and equip churches in my community. Do you have any tips that have helped you get your foot in the door with churches? It's a good question. And so, uh, for those who are licensed uh, uh, mental health providers, what you you know you find is that people are more likely to go to a clergy before they go to a mental health care provider. So a great way just to build your practice, I know that's not what they ask, but just to kind of begin with, to build your practice is when you come into an area, you're going to start a practice, is to go around and you know introduce yourself to the pastors, the clergy, ministers in the area, uh, so that they know you're there and they know who you are. What, what research shows us is that uh, pastors are more likely to refer to a mental health care provider that they know uh, is a person of faith. And so if you can share with them, at least that you are a person of faith, uh, that's uh, you know kind of a first step. But another thing is they really wanna refer to people they know. So uh, by going in and showing them the kind of things you do, uh, that's very helpful. And I think it's a, kind of the same way when you're trying to help churches or be connected to churches uh, for more educational uh, aspect. I say go in and introduce yourself, let them know what kind of practice you have, what kind of clients you see, what kind of expertise you have, and who you are as a person. That's what they're most interested in. They want to they want to refer, they want to connect with a mental health care provider they feel safe with, someone who's faith-affirming, uh, that isn't going to minimize the faith of individuals who come in. And once you kind of make that connection, then you have an opportunity to, to offer them kind of educational Opportunity. So on one level, you can be a safe referral source for them where they can send clients or congregants who are having a struggle uh, to get professional care. But you also can provide uh, stuff, you know, kind of educational things for the church. And one of the things I always recommend is start with things that everybody is interested in, uh, in something like a suicide prevention workshop. Those are uh, real open doors to getting into faith communities. Almost any faith community would like some, a provider to come in and do a suicide prevention, particularly if you did that around adolescents or children. Uh, other things that are usually pretty easy open doors would be anything related to addiction, anything related to anxiety uh, or stress. Uh, you know, you can kind of leave the more detailed uh, mental health things uh, for another day. And also very practical uh, information, stuff they can put in place. You know, what's a good way to de-escalate a situation? What's a good, what's a What's a, a good way to refer people to care in the community? Things like that. Yeah, I remember in one of our last episodes, you said that these are things that anybody can do. Any sort of lay person can do a suicide assessment. So I think, yeah, starting simple is the best way to go about that. Yeah, absolutely. You don't have to think too complicated. Just uh, offer, offer what you do, uh, and uh, they'll ask you for what they need. Totally. We can move on to question number two. Yeah. Question number two says... I am personally burdened in the area of faith and mental health. I just don't know where to begin to get involved in helping people. 
Is there any help or direction you can give me? This one's a little similar to the first one. Yeah, similar to the first, but more related to an individual, obviously, without particular training. And that's what, you know, I'm, we're very interested in Public Healing Center. We have training for uh, what you would think of as peers or laymen uh, to provide uh, some kind of support or service. I think that really is the only way we're going to be able to fill the workforce gap because there just aren't enough mental health care providers. So number one, uh, I would say to a person who's interested in helping out others who might have mental health challenges, uh, particularly if they're in a faith community, uh, you know, I would suggest you have to educate yourself first. And, and that could be a formal training. You can go to uh, our training website, which is mentalhealthgateway.org. Uh, and you, there's lots of training there that you could get. Or you could just read books. I mean, there are books out there on different types of uh, mental health problems or mental health and faith. So, you know, educate yourself first. Uh, and then I think just uh, being available uh, and being willing. Uh, I think a lot of times faith communities don't really know uh, what they need to do or can do. So, you know, connecting yourself with, uh, you know, whatever ministry you're particularly passionate about, be that an addiction ministry or a homeless ministry or any ministry that deals with populations that have high uh, rate or higher rate of mental health issues, uh, or even being part of a greeting team or, or a specific mental health ministry, you can make a huge impact in individuals' lives. I mean, most of the time people don't recognize early on that they have a mental health care problem. They just know that they're struggling. Uh, so being available, I think, at your church. If your church has a formal lay counseling ministry or pastoral care ministry, obviously that's a way to connect. But I really think just making yourself available to your pastor, to your ministry staff, letting them know that you have receive some additional training or that you have an understanding in that area and that you're, you're passionate about that and you want to assist. Uh, I think another thing you could do is to help facilitate a support group at your uh, faith community. There's lots of organizations that have support group curricula or training. Again, you can go to our mentalhealthgateway.org website. Uh, we have faith, uh, we have transform groups, which is a, a different type of support group for people with mental health issues or for caregivers. So I think there's a lot of opportunities. I think you should just, you know, start small. You don't have to try to do everything at one time. I think the worst thing you can do is run into your pastor's office and say, hey, I want to start a mental health ministry. Uh, because I think a lot of times it kind of scares people off because they're like, oh, it's going to take time and money and, you know, we've got to get people. And I think it's easier to go in and say, hey, you know, I'm passionate about mental health care needs. Uh, I have some training or education in that area. Uh, and, uh, and I'd really like to help out here how I might. Starting small is great advice. Okay, question number three says, how would an adult differentiate problems from ADHD versus anxiety? Okay, well, that's a good question. I think, you know, really, I understand why they're asking for an adult because, mm-hmm. um, but I would say that the answer is going to be kind of good for just about anyone of any age. But for an adult, I, I could imagine someone struggling with some attentional issues, maybe at work, maybe in, they're still in school, maybe just in their daily life or relationships. Uh, and they're wondering if, well, do I have ADHD? Because we do hear a lot of discussion about adult ADHD uh, today, and certainly adults can have ADHD. Uh, but also we hear a lot of discussions about anxiety. And, and I will just be the, you know, to tell you that anxiety uh, if a person's having problems with anxiety, that can certainly affect their attention. Just like if they had depression, that can certainly affect their attention, ability to focus, things like that. So, uh, so it's a good question to ask, to not just assume what you have is just an attentional issue. Because attentional problems could be a symptom of a lot of different uh, 
uh, things. Now, first, I would say this, just from kind of a, you know, just kind of a self-assessment perspective, and that would be if you never had ADHD before in your life, if you never struggled with attentional issues as a child or adolescent, if you never struggled with academic issues in relationship to that as a child or adolescent, it's unlikely that you have ADHD. It's not ADHD is not something that just kind of pops up later in life. Uh, you would have had it as a child or adolescent. I mean, normally ADHD is going to appear uh, in children first. That's kind of the age of onset. You get kind of maybe eight to 10-year-old type of thing. You might not really see significant issues until they, t- they get into adolescence, but uh, not something that just appears. You know, as I once told somebody, it's not something you catch like a cold, you know, so you don't just kind of catch it one day. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you never struggled before with these types of things, it's less likely that that's ADHD. Certainly possible that you had it early on and it was never diagnosed, uh, but if you had it, you would have struggled. There would mm-hmm. have been some problems. Now, anxiety uh, and depression, those are things that can pop up at any time yeah. in a lifetime, from early on as a child to late uh, in, uh, uh, in life. And so, uh, so it certainly could be something related to that. So the answer to the question really is you need to get an assessment. So uh, one of the things people don't understand is that in psychology and psychiatry, it isn't just a guessing game. Uh, we, we do have ways to assess individuals' testing that can tell us, much like when you go in and you get a blood test or you get some kind of brain imaging if you go to a neurologist, we have psychological assessments that can tell us what kind of mental health problem you might be struggling with. And so I would recommend that you contact uh, a mental health clinic or a mental health care provider uh, and say that you would be like, you would like to get an assessment because you're having problems with attention, I would assume, uh, and or anxiety. And they can do it. It's going to take several hours for the assessment. But then they'll give you a report that tells you if you meet criteria for ADHD or criteria for anxiety disorder. And they'll also make recommendations for treatment that might be able to help you kind of move beyond that problem. I was really interested in this question because it's kind of hard, you know, like these days you can be scrolling on social media and see something that says, do you do X, Y, and Z? You are probably have ADHD. And I myself have become victim of, man, do I have ADHD? So, right. it, you know, differentiating between general anxiety and ADHD is important because, you know, you can kind of get lost in that. Right. I mean, vague symptoms can be anything. Right. I mean, the mental health problems uh, that have been identified, they overlap significantly. So you really have to have a detailed assessment to make a determination. But I think, again, for the person that's an adult, if you never struggle with ADHD in the past, it's unlikely that it's ADHD. But it doesn't mean that it isn't a problem that you might need to get someone to help you out with. Right. Question number four says, can compulsive behaviors be a symptom of bipolar disorder or schizophrenia? Well, the short answer is yes, they can be, uh, but they are not uh, what you would think of as kind of common symptoms of either one of those disorders. I mean, certainly uh, in schizophrenia, for instance, or even in uh, bipolar disorder, when the individual is in a a more psychotic state, uh, a person can have, you know, maybe what's referred to as scrupulosity, which or maybe hyper-religiosity, where they uh, perform a set of religious rituals or tasks, and they have to do it in a very kind of compulsive or almost obsessive type of way because they believe if they don't do it, something bad will happen, but in relationship to their delusion. So that's a pretty specific thing that's related to psychosis, uh, but not impossible that a person with a bipolar disorder or schizophrenia could have kind of that compulsive 
type of behavior. Uh, it's not common uh, in those disorders. It's more common in what you would think of as an anxiety disorder, like obsessive compulsive disorder. Uh, it's also not impossible that individuals can have more than one disorder. Yeah. So a person uh, could have uh, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder and another disorder. And so mm-hmm. you know, the best thing to do if you're seeing problem symptoms related to kind of compulsive behavior would be, again, to have an assessment, to have a mental health care provider uh, take a look at you and see you know, if you meet criteria for that. The other thing is, is that you know, just because, and I would say this, a lot of times we, we kind of pathologize eccentric behaviors. Yeah. Uh, so if you've ever known anybody that was, say, a, just almost a obsessive or compulsive collector, mm-hmm. you know, they love stamps or coins or models or whatever, uh, you know, you see people and they have, you know, half their house they've turned into almost a museum for something they collect. Uh, I mean, that's not a disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people can be very eccentric in their behavior mm-hmm. uh, and not cross a line of disorder. So it, it's not just because a, a lot of times, as I was wanting to say, is a lot of times when a person has bipolar disorder or schizophrenia, everything they do is pathologized. Mm-hmm. It's, it's turned into part of the illness. Uh, every time they get angry, oh, that's the illness. Every time they get sad, oh, that's the illness. Yeah. And people get angry and people get sad and people have compulsions right. uh, that aren't part of an illness. So that's the important thing is to try to determine whether it really is part of this person's pathology or not. And really the only person that can decide that is a mental health care provider that sits down with them. Right. Moving on to question number five. This question says, can you describe a person with narcissistic personality disorder? So this is, you and I kind of uh, laughed about this a little bit when yeah. we saw it, not because we don't think it's a good question or we think it's funny. It's just because we've gotten so many questions about narcissism. Right. It's a super hot topic right now. There's been some books that have come out and, and you really hear that term. I think I said we could do a whole episode oh, on this absolutely. question. Yeah. I mean, it's really kind of risen to the top of kind of the social discussion. And again, we use these terms very cheaply in society. Yeah. Uh, you know, people say they're depressed when they're just sad. They say they're, they have an anxiety disorder or they're OCD when they're just neat or they worry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we have to really realize that when we, when we use the terms from psychology or psychiatry, particularly from diagnosis, we're talking about disorders that impair people's ability to function normally. Right. Uh, we're not. We're not just talking about being sad. Yeah. And so when you say, you know, th- this person's asking about narcissism, and there's a difference between someone having narcissistic traits mm-hmm. and having a narcissistic personality disorder. Right. Uh, and so, uh, and, and I want to kind of differentiate that. So a person who has number one narcissistic personality disorder is quite rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're looking at less than 1% of the population. Wow. Uh, and a person, it would affect their ability to function. And, and when I say that, I mean in, say, school or in, at work or in relationships. So mm-hmm. this isn't somebody who's just going to be doing great all the time. They're right. going to be struggling in some sphere of their life and probably in multiple spheres of their life. So I know a lot of times we just kind of say, oh, well, you know, the corporate CEO mm-hmm. or the you know, whatever, this guy, that guy's a super cocky kind of guy. Yeah. You know, know, the athlete. Mm -hmm. And there's a, there's a lot, there's a a long way to go from narcissistic personality disorder to somebody who's just kind of arrogant. Right. So, so let me just give you some kind of symptoms of narcissistic personality disorder. Not to say that these can't occur in people, but to have the personality disorder, you have to have basically everything that I'm talking about here. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, this person will tend to have an unreasonably high sense of self-importance, and they want constant uh, and excessive admiration. Uh, they feel they deserve privileges and special treatment, regardless of whether they've done anything to deserve that or not. Uh, they want to be recognized as superior, particularly in the absence of any kind of achievement. This is the person who thinks, well, yeah, I'm not going to go get a job because I really, you know, the job I'm going to get is I'm going to be the head of the, of the corporation, mm-hmm. you know, but I'm not willing to start out in the mailroom and work my way up. They should hire me now. They should recognize that I have that kind of ability. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they make achievements and talents that they do have seem much bigger than they really are. Uh, they're preoccupied with kind of fantasies about success and power or beauty, you know, um, and they, you know, they really believe they're superior. They're very arrogant. They want special favors. They take advantage of others for what they want. You know, I think on at one level, they just absolutely cannot handle any level of resistance or criticism or what they would consider criticism. They're very impatient. They can be explosive when somebody doesn't recognize them as special. Uh, so, you know, I can go on and on, but a person can show those traits. Mm-hmm. A person can be arrogant. A person can express, expect special treatment. But also what you find with narcissistic personality disorder is they're often very depressed. They also often have depression, uh, very moody, mm-hmm. because, you know, they constantly are holding themselves up and setting impossible boundaries for themselves or expectations for themselves uh, that even they can't ever, even they though they say that they feel like they reach that they really haven't. Mm-hmm. So the core of narcissism is really a sense of I'm not good enough. Yeah. Uh, but they would never say that. They don't recognize that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're very insecure. They have a lot of guilt and shame and they're really just miserable people to be around a lot of times. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, there is a treatment for narcissistic personality disorder, and that's dialectical behavior therapy. It can mm-hmm. be uh, effective for that. Although most people with narcissistic personality disorder would never recognize that problem. And go seek help for exactly. it. Exactly. Right? They would never seek help. They would say you have the problem. Right. Because you don't recognize kind of who they are. But I would say this. If a person just has the traits of narcissism, they maybe lack empathy for others. They're arrogant. They expect special treatment. Mm-hmm. I mean, those things can be changed in right. a person. You know, and you really have to set proper boundaries for yourself to make sure you're not taken advantage of. But I would just say that there's a long way from being arrogant Mm -hmm. uh, to be a narcissistic personality disorder. Uh, And so, you know, this happens most commonly in men. Mm -hmm. It can happen in women. I've certainly seen it in women. Uh, But I think right today, pretty much anybody who's arrogant or kind of holds themselves as above another person is kind of seen as a narcissist. And that's a uh, term people throw out kind of as an insult sometimes. Throw it around all absolutely throw yeah. it around all the time. It's not a good thing to be a narcissist. Yeah. And, and I would say this, I mean, I think, you know, this is something people don't think about a lot of times. Let's say a person has achieved quite mm-hmm. a bit mm-hmm. and is very successful and is arrogant because of that. Uh, and you know, maybe they do look down on others that have been less successful. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not narcissistic personality disorder. Yeah. I mean, that it's not good to be arrogant, right. but you know, if you, in a sense, if you write a check, you need to be able to cash it. So right. I mean, if you are, uh, you know, if you are really successful and you're kind of arrogant, I mean, in some sense, that's yeah. okay. It's not okay for relationally, mm-hmm. uh, but you, you don't, that's not, you would never consider that narcissistic. Uh, narcissistic is just the opposite. The person does not have those achievements, but holds themselves up to this 
they, they feel see themselves as superior to all other people. And, you know, I think if, when you're talking about traits, you have a conversation with the person. When you're talking about a disorder, no conversation you would ever have with a person would ever be of any value. Yeah. And when we talk about disorders, a word that you use a lot of the time to kind of tell the difference between traits and having a disorder is, is this debilitating to their life? Is it affecting their whole life or is it just something you see in them every once in a while? Right. I mean, if if they're arrogant and that bothers you, but they are able to work successfully, they have healthy relationships, they, you know, they can go to school, they, you know, those types of things, then you're not probably looking at a a personality disorder. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, I've seen, you know, I've worked with a lot of people that have narcissistic personality disorder, and typically uh, they are, you know, as far as person goes, they're pretty pitiful people. Yeah. They they struggle to to be successful in employment. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have damaged every relationship they've ever had. They often are undereducated for their intellect Mm -hmm. because they can't get through school. Uh, it's not to say everyone is like that, but right. most of them are like that. Uh, yet they see themselves as far superior to everyone. Well, thank you, Matt. And thank you to everyone who sent in questions. If you have a question and you're listening and you want to hear me and Matt talk about it on the podcast, you can send your questions to me at contact at org. And as always, I will leave all of our Hope and Healing Center information in the show notes Make sure to join us next time and thank you so much. Thank you. Yep.